Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen on a gloomy day, an ugly day, but no sirens. Oh, there we go. <laughs> As if on cue, George Gershwin comes into the frame. So I'm here with Kevin Williamson and his cover story in this issue of National Review is sitting in front of me. There's a picture of Harry Reid dressed as... Uh, well, it's a combination of a clown and a cowboy, I think. The piece is called The Clown of the Senate. And in the last couple of days, Reid has done nothing to disabuse us of this notion. He has resuscitated what has been, in truth, a, a long-standing democratic wish, which is effectively to repeal the First Amendment. They don't put it like that, of course. They put it as amend the First Amendment. And a couple of years ago, I, I joked that they wish to amend the First Amendment in much the same way as the iceberg amended the Titanic. Is that fair, Kevin? Yeah, I think so. Uh, first of all, I know that people can't see the image, but are, are you unfamiliar with the concept of a rodeo clown? That's what I was going for. I, I am mildly unfamiliar with this idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, every uh, year I think they have the uh, professional bull riders. Uh, I don't know if it's a championship or what, but they have it here at Madison Square Garden in New York. And so oh, they you should, do. You should go and familiarize yourself with uh, with rodeo clowns. I think that's a, a National Review story, actually. Couldn't it be a... That's probably not a bad idea. Cook on rodeo clowns. Cook on rodeo clowns. Cook as rodeo clowns. <laughs> we should actually get you... Uh, we should send you to, like, rodeo clown school. I think the... That would be hilarious. The, I think the pictures that would result from that would, would haunt me for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Given that the... the, the the clown Jesse Myerson this week recorded a podcast in which he is still complaining about me mocking his piece. <laughs> the internet is forever. I think that would uh, that would become Matt Iglesias with a meat cleaver. I think. I think yeah, it might be that. Might be that. But back to the more serious bit of of news here at hand. Yeah, part of the the argument of this piece is that um, you know, Harry Clown, Harry Clown, <laughs> Harry Reid. That's what we should call him from now on. Harry Clown, yeah, is a. Um, is a clownish and risible figure in a lot of ways. And uh, he says and does all sorts of odd things. And his weird little obsession with making speeches about the Koch brothers on the Senate floor. Uh, it's all sort of, you know, old man yelling, get off my lawn kind of stuff. He's become this kind of caricature. And he would be funny except for the fact that there's some serious business afoot here, which is that these SOBs mean to repeal the First Amendment. Uh, so they're unhappy with the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in a lot of free speech cases, McCutcheon, Citizens United, some of the others. And uh, in the name of what they call campaign finance reform, which just simply means regulating political speech, they want to introduce a constitutional amendment which would say the First Amendment doesn't apply as long as we call it uh, campaign reform, which is, you know, frankly nuts. Now, I don't think this thing has much of a chance of passing or going anywhere, but the fact that they're willing to do this um, as a political matter, saying, yeah, we're going to go in and, and, and repeal the First Amendment, I think is terrifying. I, I think credit where credit is due. We should, of course, say that it is nice to see the left using the amendment process for, what, the first time in right, yeah. <laughs> maybe 50 years? This is the instinct uh, after a decision that they didn't like was, is, uh, to to go through Article 5 and see what it has to say about changing the Constitution rather than merely trying to either introduce new laws that clearly violate the decision or to get the court to overturn it. So right. insofar as they are trying to do things the right way, that's uh, positive. But that's about as far as the 
as the praise can go. Yeah, well, and of course, they're going in the wrong order, too. You know, first they went and tried to get the courts to overturn the First Amendment for them. And uh, when they failed at that, then they, they said, okay, well, then we'll try the actual legal process. Well, it's probably worth saying at this point that one of the reasons that the White House matters, and this goes against what you and I often focus on, uh, being uh, dislikers, uh, haters of uh, executive overreach and executive power, our temptation is often to focus on other branches of government and to point out quite rightly that there are uh, there are other offices in the United States than the presidency, uh, not just at the state level, where, in fact, Republicans are doing reasonably well at the moment, but there is the Senate and there is the House, and these people won their elections too. But the Supreme Court really matters. And if you look at campaign finance reform, one of the champions uh, of campaign uh, of overturning campaign finance reform has been Mitch McConnell, who's been on this for, for 30 years or so now, uh, one of the, the interesting developments in American jurisprudence over the last 30 years has been the way in which the court has reversed itself on this question. In fact, when Sandra Day O'Connor retired and Justice Alito was put on the court, the First Amendment in general got a boost. Yeah. But especially since the Roberts Court was assembled in 2005, uh, campaign finance has been uh, routinely taken up as an issue and the First Amendment has been restored. And so, you know, just as a side note, when we knock the power and importance of the presidency, I mean, that is a constitutionally enumerated role of the presidency, and it really matters. Yes, it does. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, for a moment, though, um, I wrote this piece about Michael Lynn today and uh, some problems with our political discourse and the fact that people, and this is true on both sides, um, do an inadequate job of appreciating the fullness of the arguments on the other side. You know, once a week I'll get an email from somebody who, you know, took high school economics and they'll say, well, John Maynard Keynes was stupid and didn't understand economics, or Paul Krugman was stupid and didn't understand. Well, okay, Paul Krugman's not stupid, and he understands economics. He has different views than we do. Uh, so we, we should always be fair to the other side's argument. So what I want to talk about here for a second is the argument you hear from the other side, usually uh, reduced to three words, which is money isn't speech. What do you think about that? How do you answer it? Well, it's a difficult it's a difficult area because that idea is really only taken seriously and is only regnant within politics. I mean nobody would suggest that money paying for a protest sign wasn't at least inextricably bound up with protected speech. Yeah. Nobody would suggest that money that paid for a printing press or paid for a web server or a domain name wasn't inextricably bound up with speech. And in fact, if Congress were to pass a law tomorrow and draw a distinction between what the left regards as clear speech, so let's say burning a flag, and I do too, that's not a pejorative example, um, certain clothes, protest signs, buses to an assembly point, pieces written in a newspaper, radio broadcast, and the money that enabled them, all hell would break loose. Yeah. If we said, no, of course you have the right to stand in Madison Square Park holding a sign advocating against abortion, but 
the government can restrict the funds that you're using, can freeze your bank account, can prevent an outside group from donating to you via PayPal. We wouldn't accept that. No. And the argument here is twofold, I think. Firstly, it is, why do we regard political donations and money that is used in furtherance of politics and elections as being somehow different? And secondly, and importantly, is the originalist argument that the likes of Antonin Scalia and Justice Thomas and Conservatives in general forward consistent with the idea that the First Amendment was designed to protect money that was used in the furtherance of politics. So on the first question, I think it's very difficult to know where to draw a line between money and speech when money is enabling speech. And indeed, what is often forgotten, sometimes deliberately in the Citizens United case, is that had the court decided the other way, the federal government would effectively have been blocking a television commercial at the time of an election. It was a film, wasn't it? A film. Yeah. That's what, but, but the principle, you know, is right. that this was a film that would have been released. That would have been critical of Hillary Clinton. That would have been uh, critical of Hillary Clinton. Now, are we saying that by the same token, a television commercial at the time of an election could be blocked if it was paid for in a way the government disliked? Well, if Citizens United had gone the other way, absolutely it could. So that's a very dangerous principle. Now, in terms of the originalist argument, this one is much more difficult than, say, the Second Amendment. I mean, to my mind, and, and I'm happy to entertain that there are people who disagree with me, and I don't want to be too disparaging, but to my mind, the notion that the right to keep and bear arms at the founding meant anything other than what Heller says that it does. And in fact, I think it was more expansive than, than Heller is. To me, it's preposterous and it's selective reading of history. Now, is money speech? That is a difficult question historically and I, I respect the arguments on both sides. But I think when Scalia says that there was absolutely no intention for the First Amendment and the United States Constitution in general to prohibit uh, individuals, wealthy or not, to contribute financially to politics, uh, I, I think is, is seems reasonably clear. Yeah, and that's something that Roberts has gotten to in some of his writing on this, uh, which is that even if you don't, even if you, okay, say buy that argument, say money isn't speech, uh, there's still nothing in the Constitution and our legal history that gives us a very good, strong reason to believe that it's legitimate for the government to prohibit people from donating money to causes, even if it's not a First Amendment issue per se. Now, our laws about campaign finance have always restricted how much money people can give to an individual office holder or an individual office seeker. And the reason for these laws is to prevent bribery. Uh, And so what they decided in in McCutcheon and, uh, and have argued in some other places is that really the only legitimate purpose of campaign finance is prevention of quid pro quo corruption, uh, not the regulation of political activism. And that seems to me about the right road to go down, which is why McCutcheon sort of makes sense to me. Well, I should say say two things on that. The first one is, if we're being honest, both Mitch McConnell and Clarence Thomas think that that decision, Buckley v. Vallejo, which puts the limit on how much you can give to an individual candidate. McCutcheon, of course, struck down the aggregate limit. 
should be overturned. Yeah. So there is a constituency within the conservative movement that does not draw that distinction. And I'd also ask, and I'm not pretending to know the answer to this because I'm not by any means a First Amendment scholar, at least not in this area, but I would ask, although the principle of corruption is an important one to discuss in a, in a free country and in a democracy, that doesn't answer the question of what the First Amendment has to say about money, speech, corruption, quid pro quo, donations. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there is a strong argument that Buckley v. Vallejo was wrongly decided as well. Yeah, possibly. One of the worrisome things about this amendment to me um, is particularly the language of it, which is even though it's... Uh, being enacted in the name of campaign finance reform uh, covers corporations of all kinds. Uh, and as you know, American law does not really make a distinction between media companies mm-hmm. and other sorts of companies. And under this amendment, uh, what they call in-kind contributions would be regulatable by Congress. That means things like newspaper endorsements or coverage uh, in the media that the FEC regards as overly sympathetic or overly hostile to the other side. Uh, this doesn't just, you know, put limits on what Charles and David Koch can do or what George Soros can do or what, you know, your hedge fund guys out in California can do. Now, they may not have intended it this way, but the language of this amendment would permit uh, wholesale regulation of the media. And the brilliant minds over at the Velote Conspiracy have been harping on this since this amendment was first suggested, mooted, two years ago, mm. saying you need to be very careful what you wish for because once we have established the idea that the First Amendment does not apply to anyone uh, who is not an individual, to any entity that is not an individual, then we have gone down the road of regulating the New York Times, as yeah. you say. And it, this is not a clear left-right split. I mean, Glenn Greenwald took to the pages of Salon <laughs> to make precisely this case and to say we need to be careful not to have government regulating. And in Britain... Uh, where they, there's no constitution to prevent it, but Parliament recently debated, and I think passed a similar campaign finance law, small groups who were used in uh, rhetorical, uh, in, in campaigning to justify the law, stood up and said, no, 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 don't do this to us. Because the way, you know, the only way that we can break in at the lower levels of discourse is to receive donations and pool our resources and at the point at which we pool our resources we're suddenly being regulated whereas the established newspapers even if they get out of the game of endorsements even if they get out of the political game in an explicit sense they already have the power yeah and Jonah, Jonah asks this too as this is not a constitutional legal principle but Jonah asks this too what is the moral difference between it's being unfair that Charles and David Koch have more spending power come election time than I do, and it's being unfair that Lady Gaga has 20 million Twitter followers and some guy in Seattle has three, and he tweets, vote for Mitt Romney, and she tweets, vote for Barack Obama. Yeah. You know, what the is co- the difference? There? Uh, she well, didn't pay for the. She didn't pay for Twitter. Yeah, well, it's not just a moral question, I think, because you know, in the context of the First Amendment, uh, 
political speech should be the number one thing that we're looking to protect in political activism of various kinds, because that's what the First Amendment is there to do. So I don't, I don't think that's you know totally outside of, of the realm of um, inquiry under under the law. But the other point about this, you know, as, as a matter of functional government, is that you don't really want incumbents setting the rules under which they're going to be challenged. Uh, you want to have a very open situation. Mm. You don't want them in charge of regulating discourse because obviously they're going to do it with their own interests in mind. I mean, that's, they don't become saints once they get elected to Congress, as we've seen demonstrated. Well, I'm, I'm laughing because there was a, what I think may be uh, an unintentional piece of truth-telling in Harry Reid's interview with BuzzFeed. I think it was yesterday. He said that in 1998 when he ran for the Senate, money was so... Uh, the amount of money was, was significant. And he says, it was awful. It made me feel cheap. And he said, I almost lost, but I just won. And then he says, but in 2004, it just felt so nice after McCain fine gold. You think so effectively, Harry, what you said there without meaning to is, I almost lost an election. We need to amend the Constitution. Yeah, he said something similar about... Uh I guess about Sandra Day O'Connor because she'd been a state legislator once upon a time and he's saying, you know, we need more legislators and former elected office holders uh, on the Supreme Court because they know how hard it is to run for office. Well, you know what, Harry? It's supposed to be hard to run for office. You know, you're supposed to get a challenge every six years or every two years. Right. And, but they don't, they don't see it that way. And anytime there's, um, you know, anytime there's a particularly vigorous primary or... Uh, you know, some single issue group gets involved, they talk like it's the end of democracy, and when in fact it's just the end of their monopoly. Yeah, and, and Reed is by no means consistent with his dislike of money in politics. <laughs> Tom Steyer is currently promising to spend $100 million, and Reed has twice scheduled uh, talkathons in the Senate in order to indulge that. I have slightly changed my view on this. On this podcast, I said Democrats, good for them if they believe that the world is about to end, they spend all night talking about it. But I think that the link between the donations and the talk is is a clear one. That's not, incidentally, uh, to say that I think that's an unreasonable or an unfair uh, link or that government should be involved in putting a stop to it. But there is a, a link there. And he drew a bizarre, self-serving distinction recently between the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. I'm trying to be Vegas Sands Corporation. But apparently Sheldon Adelson's money is fine because he really believes right. in the politics that he's funding, whereas apparently the Koch brothers just want to make more money, which I love as an idea that they're looking at it. Not, not least because the Koch brothers spend a lot of time uh, advocating for policies that would hurt them. For yeah. example, the repeal of certain subsidies. Uh, but because... Uh, the prospect of two brothers sitting down and saying to one another, do you know, we're worth, what, $30 billion? But if we could just spend an awful lot of money and get a few regulations around the edges changed, then we'll be able to make another 10. Yeah, the funny thing about Then this we can is, finally buy nice houses. Yeah. <laughs> People don't really, you know, get what the Co brothers do. And they've been involved in this sort of activism since, like, the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, they were instrumental in founding the Cato Institute, all sorts of other stuff. But for the longest time, what they invested most of their philanthropic money in was basically, you know, academic enterprises, mm. uh, you know, scholarships and helping people become professors and those sorts of things. 
and you know, sort of deep nerd think tank stuff. And no one cared about the Koch brothers for 30 years. And then when they decided to actually get involved in the outcomes of elections, then the world goes crazy. Yeah. Now, think about Sheldon Adelson. <clears throat> His politics, I think, are actually kind of all right on a lot of things. Uh, you know, he's a very pro-Israel guy. He's pretty conservative on some issues. And uh, I think he's an okay guy. I think he's in kind of a gross business. I think casino gambling is just sort of a nasty business. He was a big Newt Gingrich backer. Kind of tells you what sort of guy he is. But, um, you know, it says something about a man's politics that uh, you look at Charles and David Koch and you assume that they're in it for the money. But then you take a guy who's in the casino business and you, and you automatically think, oh, here's altruism at work. Because no one in the casino business cares about making money. Yes, it couldn't have anything to do with the fact that Sheldon Adelson operates in Nevada, where Harry Reid uh, is from, and uh, the Koch brothers operate in Kansas, could it? Yeah, maybe. Maybe something like that. So I have a, I have a question for you on this. Yeah. And this is something that we were debating a little bit this morning in the, in the editorial meeting. Suppose... Just indulge me here. Mm. Suppose that this constitutional amendment gets out of Congress and is then sent to the states for ratification. It would rattle around probably for two or three years. Or more. Hopefully longer. Hopefully until after I am dead. But it will rattle around and it will be clearly the the work of the Democratic Party. Now, which do you think, and this is a genuine question, this is not rhetoric, which do you think is the more powerful and persuasive description in the eyes of the American public? Description one, the Democrats want to change the Bill of Rights. Or, number two, we need to get money out of politics. Proposition number two has a lot of support. Uh, there's a great deal of hostility toward that. Most people don't think of it as a First Amendment free speech, free association issue. They think of it as evil rich people, and I don't like them. Uh, that's, you know, unfortunate. But that is the reason, after all, why you have a Bill of Rights, is to protect liberties against that sort of prejudice and a meaningless, uh, inchoate hostility. Right, which is why this morning... You're seeing the bizarre side of the Unite Blue hashtag on Twitter and the various Democratic lackeys that populated, uh, arguing that the Bill of Rights need to be amended in order to save the majority. Well, you could do that with anything. I mean, you could say 90% of Americans are in favor of a flag-burning um, uh, uh, law, and this tiny privileged elite of 10% <laughs> are stopping them, we need to change the Bill of Rights. You could say the same thing about privacy or about the right to a trial, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, all sorts of rights. Um, you know, uh, a lot of, a, a fair number of Americans support things like the imposition of government censorship if it's for the purpose of national security. Uh, you know, fighting the war on terror, that sort of thing. And it's only the fact that we have these anti-democratic institutions, uh, namely a written constitution and a bill of rights and courts that sometimes actually go out and enforce them, that stops the majority from getting its way in that case. And uh, the idea that you should thwart the majority from getting its way seems to people sometimes undemocratic, but it's not really such a radical idea when you think about it. This is why we write laws down. This is why we have constitutions. This is why we have bills of rights and limits on government because majorities are mobs 
and mobs will do what mobs do, and they'll get you know whipped up into a frenzy over this and that. And uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty skeptical toward the idea of toward the belief that the best way to make decisions about community life is to bundle all sorts of very complicated issues about which most people know nothing into two big packages, one marked R and one marked D, right. and then putting up in front of a plebiscite. Uh, for a public that would rather be watching, you know, the Real Housewives or whatever, I don't think that's probably the uh, the best way to make decisions in general. Although you need some of that, obviously, to to maintain a, a democratic republic. But um, so I'm I, I'm definitely in favor of posing some fairly severe limits on what majorities can do. And people who don't agree with me on that, I always just point out to them, you know, this country twice elected George W. Bush, and then it twice elected Barack Obama. There's got to be something in those four elections to make everyone on both sides of every issue skeptical about the wisdom of the American electorate. So I'm, I'm deeply skeptical about the wisdom of any electorate, and I believe that the best parts of the U.S. Constitution and uh, established order are those that are undemocratic. So for me, the beauty of America is the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. It's the trial by jury, it's due process, it's written law. We all pine for the unelected Senate. Well, uh, but the Senate itself is undemocratic in that it's designed to give the states representation. And when people say it's unfair because it doesn't represent the majority of people, it's not supposed to represent. And in fact, James Madison had his reservations about it for precisely that reason. But on this question, at least, I'm not a, a Madisonian. So I'm absolutely with you on that, and I think America needs less national democracy, not more. I think the state should be in charge of more, and if we could leave as much as is possible, even to local government, I'd be fine with that too. For once, though, I'm not particularly worried about the question at hand, which is, will the American public buy this amendment process? Because the Constitution being, in the classic phrase, a totem and a fetish, most of our debates about individual rights transcend whatever the question is at hand the minute you introduce, but it's in the Constitution. And in fact, if you say something is in the Constitution which isn't, or something is unconstitutional when it's not, people tend to flock toward your position. I don't think that the Democratic Party and the wider left is going to get past the Republican commercial that says Democrats want to change the Bill of Rights or Democrats want to change the First Amendment or worse, Democrats want to repeal the First Amendment. I don't think people will listen. I understand that people are upset about money in politics. I understand that the Koch brothers and Tom Steyer and Sheldon Adelson do not cut sympathetic figures and I understand that if you ask them the question in a vacuum, do you think that campaign finance reform is necessary, you'd probably have a sizable majority who would say yes. Until you said, do you want to change the First Amendment? And I'm looking here to the Second Amendment, which is a great weapon, even in cases when it's untrue. People listening in their cars are going nuts right now. (laughs) (laughs) The Second Amendment is a great weapon for the anti-gun control side, even when they're lying. Yeah. I mean, you, let's not pretend that people on my side of this issue don't lie about what the Second Amendment means. I've seen this happen. You say to somebody... Do you think that we should have universal background checks? And they say yes. It's not 90%, but it's probably a majority. But then you say, do you agree with the part of the Constitution that says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed? Do you like undermining the Second Amendment? And that support drops dramatically. And I just cannot see how in an election year, and I absolutely hope I'm right here, (laughs) but I cannot see how, especially in an election year, the Democrats want to change the First Amendment is a willing, a winning message. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Um, I think that you know they'll get some traction with arguing for it as a campaign finance measure rather than an anti-First Amendment measure. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe the that uh, that language will uh, prevail. I think we should end though by doing a short summary of what our podcast will sound like if this amendment should pass. <laughs>